All right, what a blessing to be able to share this time together with all of you. Uh, like I say, my friends, near or far, wherever you are, all of you joining us right now, if you are joining us for the very first time, I am Pastor Terry. I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone Church in San Francisco, and I'm so happy uh, you're joining us right now, and I pray for you to be just extremely blessed. And, uh, you know, we're talking about this idea of choosing. Our series is called A Time to Choose, and I'm going to pick back up with uh, a discussion that I started last week around the first miracle of Jesus that was recorded in John 2. But really what I want to get at is <laughs> the importance of choosing to do what Jesus says and how when we do it, it just unlocks things. So let me just pray real quick and then we'll jump right back in here, John 2. But Lord, I ask that you would be with us here as we share your word you know what's going on in our lives. You know every detail of it. Nothing's hidden from you. Uh, those of us who've come to know you and embrace you as our Savior, we understand you're so faithful, amazingly so. We know you love us despite our flaws, sins, weakness, and willfulness. But we ask that you would touch us in such a way that we would yearn to do what you're asking that we would have more of a sincere desire to want to please you with our lives. And so we ask that you would be with us in this time. Bless it as we pray together, even now in Jesus' name. John 2 verse 1 says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now remember, Cana was located, uh, it was about eight miles north of Nazareth the hometown that uh, Jesus had grown up in, in the Galilee. We're told in verse 3 that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, which was a problem. <laughs> we talked about that. It was going to be quite an embarrassment for the bridegroom and his family. Jesus said to her, not disrespectfully, woman, what, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, and we, we laugh at it. She wouldn't take, take the answer of Jesus as a no. Whatever he tells you, do it. Do whatever he tells you. Jesus is, remember, his statement is, I, I, what does this have to do with me? And she looks at him. And I got to love Mary's husband. She says, hmm. Turns to the servants and says, whatever he says. Do what he says. I know he's going to do something. Last week we talked about it. The value of persistence. Pressing in. Even when it seems like initially the door is shut. Where we talked about the nature of relationship. And how important it is. That relationship with Jesus. Because it creates opportunities for us to be able to ask the Lord for his provision. Even when some of those things may even... They may seem a bit frivolous, especially when compared to the larger needs of our world. And yet when I look at what happens here with Mary and Jesus, that's exactly what she did. She asked Jesus to help her in what was uh, a delicate situation. But it, in, in the big picture, it, it almost can seem so small, but it was a big deal for Mary. And she asked Jesus for his help. And again, despite his initial pushback. She said to the servants, listen to him. Just do whatever he says. That's, that's what you got to do right now. Which is, by the way, 
great advice for us. Whatever Jesus tells us to do, do it. Whatever he tells us to do, do it. And I would ask this question, loved one, loved of God, beloved son, beloved daughter, what is he asking us to do? What is he asking us to do right now in this season of our lives? What is he asking us to do? Because so much of what he wants to unlock is going to be connected to our willingness to do it. Verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. In the ancient world, it's still the case today. It really is. Even in our modern world, it's still the case today. We know this absolutely in light of the water shortages we've been having. This is something that is a reality. In fact, clean water is a reality as an issue for people all over what used to be known as the third world, the developing world, especially. But we have water issues as well. And in the ancient world, water, it was like a valued commodity. And it, and the other thing is <laughs> they didn't have indoor plumbing. It was a lot of work was required to get it. The water in six water pots would have been used uh, for uh, two primary purposes. One would have been for, and we're told about it here, the Jewish rites of purification. But one was for the washing of the guests' feet when they arrived. This would have been considered common and a customary courtesy because in those days, people wore sandals and they traveled on dirt roads. Upon entry, they would, they would stop and uh, they would have their feet washed. It was both considered proper etiquette and also it was sanitary. The other purification rite that water was used for was hand washing. And this would occur before meals. In fact, some uh, devout adherence to the law, actually, they, they washed their hands not just before meals, but between each course. Again, it was considered both ceremonial and hygienic. And the jars of clay that we uh, are told about here, these, these six water pots, they were large. They would have probably contained about 20 to 30 gallons of water. And look what it says Jesus told them in verse 7. It says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars, fill it, fill it, fill them up, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Once again, it would have been hard work. It, it, it wasn't just go turn the faucet on and fill up those large jars. No, it was go to the well and lug it back until all these jars are completely filled, right? So it, it, you know, they were going to have to go and get the water, pour it in, get the water, pour it in. It wasn't going to be easy. It was hard work. And there was another issue here. I think we understand it, but then we're looking backwards at this. At the time, they would have wondered, well, what in the world does getting water have to do with solving this wine issue. Like, what's, what's the connection here? It was, I mean, we, we already know that the wine had probably been watered down enough. Just pouring water into it was going to just be uh, a kind of 
meaningless <laughs> way of approaching the, the problem. I mean, there's nothing that would have been solved by just putting more water in. And, but here's the thing. There, I just felt like the Lord really wanted to make this clear to us. There are going to be times when we will be asked to serve his purpose with no assurance of a clear outcome. See, that, that's huge. Just say that one more time. There are going to be times when we will be asked to serve his purpose with no assurance of a clear outcome. Like, and in those moments, we're going to have to choose. We're going to have to choose. Now, the servants, they were told by Mary, whatever he says, and I'm not sure what it's going to be, but whatever he says, because I know he's going to do something, because I asked him, whatever he says, do it. Jesus told them to fill the large jars with water. And as I already mentioned, this was hard work. And <laughs> I have found after years of service for Jesus and, and it's been a privilege and it's been grace. But I have found that there will be times when seeking to obey the Lord, we will, we will, <laughs> we don't wonder what is God up to here? It doesn't always make sense. And this is critical. In fact, it's really important. Uh, if we only choose to do what makes sense to us, there will be some miracles he wills to do in and through and around us that we're never going to experience. If we only do what seems logical, sensible, and I'm not taught advocating a illogical and senseless dominant Christian life. I'm not. But if we only do what seems logical and sensible and most practical, then there are going to be some things, some breakthroughs, some, yeah, miracles. They may be small ones, some answers to prayer, some stunning turn arounds that the Lord's wanting to do in our lives and around us and the people of our, uh, that are connected to us. And, and they're not going to, they're not going to happen if we're not willing to, to do what he's asking, regardless of how we feel about it. Maybe, I, maybe I can put this another way. Our job is to get the water and pour it. His job is to turn it into wine. Our job is to get the water and pour it. His job is to turn it into wine. But the latter will never come if the former is not done. That's one of the, the key principles. We have to do what we know to do. Uh, you know, we just can't disengage and say, oh, you know, it's in God's hands. I mean, I, I suppose some things are in God's hands. But if there's no effort on our part, if there's, if there's no intention, if we're not doing all that he's asking us to do, then then I, I really doubt the Lord's going to bring the breakthrough we're yearning for. Unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchman wakes but in vain. Unless, unless the Lord builds a city, you know, the builder does it. It's, it's, it's in vain, right? It's, it's, and yet without our efforts, right? Without our efforts, the other won't happen. And, you know, Jesus, if I, if I can push this one more step, it's not just choosing to fetch the water. It's also how we do it.
It's how we do it. Jesus said, fill the jars with water. This was important. Not just put some water in, you know, get a cup, you know, just get a bucket poured in there or something. No, no, no. Fill them up. Fill them up. Fill them up to the rim, to the point of overflowing is what is implied. And here we have another principle for the way of Jesus. Whatever he asks us to do, we should seek to give him our best. If he says fill it up, then let's not, let's not go halfway with a bad attitude. Mumbling under our breath, mm, I have to do this, which I have done. Or doing it for appearance sake, which I have done. <laughs> or out of obligation because it's my responsibility, which <laughs> I, I have done. No, no, come on. Let's choose to serve his purposes with with enthusiasm and with optimism. I mean, if we're going to do something for Jesus, whether it's serving at church in a way that seems, uh, well, like it doesn't really maybe matter that much or isn't noticed. It's not the platform serving, whether it's serving in church or giving, giving of our resources, giving of our ties, giving of our offerings, this commitment we make when we follow Jesus to be a steward that honors him with our first fruits. And for me, that's always meant uh, tithing, giving him a tenth of what I have, and then responding with offerings in different ways uh, out of that same heart. Or whether it's, so whether it's honoring him in, in service or in giving or at work, just choosing to be a kind of worker that is trustworthy, that does quality work that is known for their excellence, that isn't uh, trying to get away with things uh, or dishonest or conniving <laughs> or political, but we, we are authentic. We are working as under the Lord. We are doing our best. We are giving him our best. We are doing good work because we seek to honor Jesus in our lives. We seek to be honorable men and honorable women. And we want to have integrity as much as possible. And we know we need the Lord's help for that because there's going to be times when we don't feel like it. And there's going to be times when it's easy, when no one's looking to shirk off and, uh, you know, give, do, do poor work, give less than our best. But I want to suggest that if the Lord is asking something of us, especially if we sense Jesus really saying, this is what you need to do, then we need to choose. There it is, a time to choose. Um, we need to choose to do it to the best of our abilities. We need to give Jesus our best. Not our leftovers, not our half-hearted service, not our, as I mentioned earlier, not our work that's done grudgingly with a poor attitude because we have to. No, because we get to. <laughs> Grandfather would always tell me, you don't have to give, you get to. I was like, okay. <laughs> but it made it, I remembered. And, uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to serve Jesus. You get to. And that's, that's, he doesn't, he doesn't need us. As he told me, he, I remember he would say to me, he doesn't, he doesn't need you. 
He loves you, but he doesn't need you. You need him. And to do his work is a great privilege. Wow. And remember, whatever we do, things that he's asking us to do, whenever we choose to respond, whether it's small or large, whether it's a, a, a modest expression or something that is quite demanding, whether it's noticed by a lot of people or probably unnoticed or noticed by very few, but how we choose to do what we sense the Lord wants us to do is asking us to do. It's huge. It matters. And when we do it, when we do it with a right heart, in a right way, with a right attitude, listen, it becomes, it becomes an act of worship. It really does. It becomes an act of worship. So little things matter. And Jesus taught us that. He noticed that a lot too. He noticed a lot of little things that other people missed. And we could spend a lot of time talking about that. But I just want to say that when we do things under the Lord that he's asking us to do, whether they're noticed or unnoticed, big or small, um, celebrated or missed, if we do it with the right heart, the Lord knows and it matters. Verse eight, and he said to them, now draw some out, the water that you filled up, you filled the water, the jars all the way up to the rim. That's great. Now I want you to do this. I want you to draw some water out and then take it to the master of the feast. <laughs> they said, okay. <laughs> so that's what they did. And how can we say this? Uh, somewhere between verse eight and nine, <laughs> That water became wine. <laughs> I remember reading something that Charles Spurgeon, the eloquent and influential English preacher of the 19th century, sometimes they called him the Prince of Preachers. That's how uh, gifted he was. But he wrote this about this particular miracle that I've, I never forgot. And I, I want to share it with you. He said, Spurgeon wrote, being a genuine miracle it is done just as nearly after the course of nature as the supernatural can go. Jesus does not have the water pots emptied and then fill them with wine, but he goes as far with nature as nature will go. And he uses water to make the wine from when the water, think about this, when the water drops from heaven and flows into the earth to the roots of the vine and so swells the clusters with ruddy juice, it is through water that the wine is, is produced. Isn't that fascinating? There is only a difference as to the time, whether the wine is created in the cluster or in the water pots. <laughs> this is fantastic. You say the water goes into the ground, goes into the vine, comes out into the grapes. And he's saying all Jesus did was circumvent that entire process and turn that water straight into wine. Right? So, because out of the grapes is where the wine comes from. And, and, and it, by the way, this wine, <laughs> from what we can tell, it wasn't a mediocre, watered down version. The version that I joked about that last week and, and alluded to it earlier. As the ceremonies went on and the wine got, you know, less and less available, a host would oftentimes 
just add water. Now they wouldn't add so much water, but they would add water. And so the wine over the course of the celebration would begin to lose a lot of its, uh, how we would say, uh, flavor and con consistency and, and but, you know, people, they didn't notice as much as the wedding went along. But this one, this one wasn't the watered-down version. Look what it says in verse 9. When the master of the feast, the coordinator, tasted the water that had now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Ah, oh, that's great. That's good. That's worth noting. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone, I imagine he said it in front of all the people. And maybe when he called the bridegroom over, the, <laughs> when, he, when he called the, the you know, when he called he, he, him over, he could have said, well, you know, the bridegroom was like, oh boy, this is going to be embarrassing. But he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then comes the poor wine. But... <laughs> You're amazing. You kept the good wine until now. I mean, it wasn't bad at the beginning, but this, oh, this is great. The master of the ceremony was incredulous at the bridegroom as the host had broken with convention and saved the best for last. He was very impressed, very impressed. And, and the, the bridegroom must have just soaked in the moment, right? <laughs> He too, he too was surprised as the cups were raised. His reputation, which it went from being, you know, cheap to something uh, a notch below legendary. You know, I mean, it was it went, he he became a, a local hero forever. And he, of course, along with everyone except for the servants, had no idea at what had transpired. But the servants, the servants, hmm, the servants who had done the work of hauling the water and filling the pots had been privy to something they would never forget. Never, ever forget. Right? No. Over the centuries, it has been said. It has been said. And I think it's true, still true today, that the greatest blessing, the greatest blessing belongs to those who serve others in his name. Think about it this way. The guests, they got a blessing. They sipped the new wine. Oh, this is good. This is good. They sipped it and enjoyed it. The bridegroom, he was saved from embarrassment and gained prestige. Yes, I know. <laughs> but it was the servants. It was the servants who did the work, who got the greatest blessing of all, for they were participants in the miracle provision. And then we're told in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed for a few days. Yes, Jesus had a family. Those were his half-brothers. Seems that Joseph, at this, by this time, has died. But the simple, I just, I, this is what I was wanting us to, to notice, the simple summary of the miracle. 
This was the first sign. And its significance and effect and the ordinariness of what followed is in and of itself arresting, isn't it? It almost, if I can put it this way, it almost catches us off guard with its modesty. It really does. This is the first signs, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. <laughs> this was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And even this was not done publicly or ostentatiously, but with modesty and simplicity. Of all the things that Jesus could have done to demonstrate his miracle power and open up his public ministry, this, this is relatively speaking so other than that in terms of a full display. It, it, it's just, it's just soft. It's so modest. It's so silent. It's so under the radar. That's what I'm trying to get at. You know, a sign, and we're told this is the first of Jesus's signs. A sign is, is meant to point us somewhere, isn't it? And in this case, uh, John in his gospel is pointing out that this sign was given to point to Jesus the first of the signs to point to Jesus. That sign pointed to Jesus as God's unique son, Messiah, the redeemer, uh, God among us, Emmanuel, right? God with us. And, uh, I, I do think it also implied indirectly the purpose of his coming. And this one, I just want you to think about and consider because this first sign, and I've thought about this before. Over the years, I've, I've wondered about it and thought, oh, wow, you know, it's interesting. The first miracle of Jesus was turning the water into wine. And, and uh, yeah, that's consistent with, with the way the Lord approached his power displays. It wasn't designed to explode the sky. It was done softly and, and oftentimes unnoticed. And yet, this one, if you really think about it, it actually is way more appropriate than it would seem because it points to the purpose of his coming. It points towards the hour of the cross and of course the resurrection, which he would later say would be his ultimate sign where he would say that if you destroy this temple, he's talking about his body in three days, I will raise it up. But think about this one. Think about this. Even the wine, he turned the water into wine. Even the wine reminds us of something. Doesn't it? Three years later, on a mysteriously beautiful night, he would say, take the wine and drink it as a testimony of my love for you. Drink this as a testimony of my blood poured out for you. <laughs> The connection between his first miracle and the ultimate provision should not be missed. The wine of his blood that covers our sins and covers us from every point of unrighteousness, the very life of Jesus for the life is in the blood. It was always connected 
And so the connection of the first miracle to the cross <laughs> is actually quite special and a reminder of how much we are loved. For God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send his son into this world to condemn it. We're told in John 3, 17, but that the world through him might be saved. And yet we must choose, choose to receive him. In the same way we're being reminded to, that we're gonna have to choose to do what he says, we're gonna also have to choose the path that he's opened up for us. That choice belongs to us. No one else can make it for us. We get to decide just the same way we get to decide how we're gonna live for him. And my prayer for each one of us, it really is, is that if we've never accepted him as our savior, we've never taken the cup and said, I am yours, uh, <laughs> cover me, Lord Jesus, that you would do it. And if you do take that step, let us know. We want to help and assist you. But for those of us who have made that decision, may we also retain all through our days a responsiveness to do, to choose to do what he is asking, even when it doesn't make sense to us, because it's in those places, those places of little obedience and sometimes a lack of clarity around it that we open up the possibility for God to do amazing things. <laughs> That's what it is. All right, let's keep that in mind. Uh, we're going to share our song here, and then I'm going to come back around. I want to close this out with a blessing. I want you to be blessed. So here we go. Oh, 
Jesus, work in us. Miracle working Jesus, work in us. Turn water into wine and renew our souls. You know, Lord, we look to you. We ask for power. We ask for courage. We ask for humility so that we might be your servants and to do what you are asking. And we know that when we do what you are asking, we open up possibility, possibility for you to bless, not just us, but others. And in the end, that's what loving you is also connected to, loving others. And the best way we can love others is by being obedient and doing what you say. As you reminded us, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? The Lord wants us, loved ones to do what he says. May, may that stir your heart and may my heart be stirred as well. And may you be kept a servant of Jesus is what you are. And I pray for that blessing over all of us this day as we go our way in Jesus' name.